Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Cozy Corner Book Club with your hosts, Sean and Lindsay. Sean and I have been best friends for over 15 years, and we spent that time dreaming up books to write, houses to build, fandom bars to open. I mean, the list just goes on and on. So last year we decided to start a blog of our own, Sean and Lindsay's Best Friends Guide to Everything. On the blog, you can find recaps of your favorite film franchises, meal prep recipes, travel guides, and our best adulting tips, and so much more. Check it out at bfguidetoeverything.com. In addition to our blog, we started the Cozy Corner Book Club and Podcast. Read along with us and then find us on Facebook and Instagram for weekly discussion questions. So we will begin with a brief summary. Nick Carraway, a Yale-educated man and veteran, moves from the Midwest to New York City. He starts looking for a job in finance and rents a summer home in West Egg on Long Island. He learns that his next-door neighbor is a multimillionaire who likes to throw amazing parties. Nick meets up with Daisy, a relative, and her husband Tom, and a friend of Nick's from college who recently moved to New York from Chicago. At their home, he meets Jordan Baker, a well-known female golfer. Jordan reveals to Nick that Tom's mistress calls while the group chats. When he gets home, he sees a man outside, staring across the bay at a green light. A little while later, Nick and a drunk Tom visit New York City, and on the way, stop at a garage. Here we meet Tom's mistress, Myrtle, and her husband, George, the mechanic. The two continue their way, and Myrtle joins them at Tom's secret city apartment that he rents for his illicit affair. The group gets larger as more guests join in, and the party is in full swing until Tom slaps Myrtle and breaks her nose. Nick leaves and sleeps off the alcohol on a bench. The next day, a man shows up with an invitation to Gatsby's party for that evening. Nick shows up at the party to find that he doesn't know anyone. He drinks heavily and then sees Jordan. The two chat and are joined by a man who reveals himself to be the host, Jay Gatsby. Jay and Nick chat until Nick decides he's ready to walk home. Gatsby and Nick begin to hang out and learn some of Gatsby's history with Daisy and how he waits to be reunited with her. Jordan convinces Nick to go along with the plan to have the old flames meet again resulting in an affair between Jay and Daisy. Weeks later, Tom figures about the affair when Daisy flirts with Jay in front of everyone. This leads to a huge argument in which the men try to claim who Daisy loves. When Daisy states that she cannot say she never loved Tom, Tom moves in for the win. He reveals that Gatsby is a bootlegger and a swindler. Daisy then chooses to stay with Tom. Tom, flaunting his win, has Gatsby and Daisy drive home while he leaves with the rest of the group, knowing that no matter what Gatsby would say, Daisy wouldn't break up their marriage. On the way back, Daisy runs over Myrtle with her car, instantly killing her. Gatsby tells Nick that he will take the blame, as he loves her and he is the owner of the car. George, overwhelmed with grief, finds Gatsby and kills him before killing himself. Nick attends the funeral and is disgusted, that only three people show up. Later on, Nick sees Tom on Fifth Avenue, where Tom admits that he was the one who told George that Gatsby owned the car that killed Myrtle. 
and where he lived. Before returning home, Nick returns to the mansion one last time, stares across the bay at the green light emanating from the empty house where Daisy used to live. So how far should one go to maintain their current lifestyle, do you think? Personally, I'm of the opinion, you know, do whatever you want so long as it doesn't hurt or impede the happiness of other people. And clearly a lot of people in this book are willing to cross that line. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think Gatsby especially kind of took his lifestyle just to the far end, you know, like very extreme. He grew up really poor and his, at the end during his funeral, his dad comes back and is even like showing Nick this schedule that Gatsby had made back in the day. Just, just to kind of show how ambitious he's always been and how he's always pictured this life that's so much greater than what he has. So he's always reaching for more. And even when he's got this beautiful house and a ton of money and, could have anybody he wanted and he's got people around all the time he's still it's never enough he's always looking for the next thing and then um he you know goes from wanting all this wealth and everything to you know wanting daisy and then wanting the wealth for her and thinking that he needs more to impress her and when she brings up like well let's just run away like let's just go away together and he's like what do you mean run away like this is our this is what i had planned this is our life that we had together like we have to stay right here so he just, he, I think he took it too far. And that's one of the really cool, well, maybe not cool, but interesting uh, notes that the narrator brings up when we learn these things about Gatsby. Um, he had a vision. Mm. And that's all that mattered. It was very, it was like you said, he had the schedule. He had a vision of the picket white fences, the nuclear family everything that he wanted and that's how it was going to be and that's why i mean i remember reading this in high school and the the huge significance of him meeting daisy's child and how he first off is in complete shock and then he pretty much denies her existence because Obviously, the child is evidence that Daisy moved on, that Daisy made a life outside of him. Um, So next is, are any of the characters innocent? Nope. (laughs) I mean, everybody was complicit in some kind of underhand or just straight up, like, I don't know, not innocent thing. What's the opposite of innocent? Why can't I think of words right now? Guilty? Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, Gatsby and Daisy were having an affair, and then you've got Tom is having an affair with Myrtle, and Nick isn't necessarily partaking in any of these things, but he's also just watching it happen. He's not speaking up he's not saying anything he's not doing anything to he's not just he's not doing anything about it so that makes him no better than any of the rest of them i mean he's just a he's a willing witness so oh and then you got daisy and wilson both commit murder so (laughs) can't forget that 
but no, I don't, I don't think anybody was innocent. Um, I know on the Facebook post, I spoke of everyone being guilty, just everyone, except for the daughter, because, you know, she's a child. She hasn't done anything yet. Mm. But now that I think about it, you know, Jay's father was pretty innocent. You know, he raised his son and said, hey, follow your dreams, you know, go for it, do this, and supported him. So, I mean. I guess I was thinking more of the major characters, like um, Mr. Gatz. Oh, definitely definitely all of the major characters are, you know, completely implicit in terrible, terrible deeds. No one is innocent, but you can understand their intentions between behind a lot of it. You know, like Daisy and Jay, like they loved each other. And so, you know, Jay had spent all this time like trying to get Daisy back and all this. And so, I mean, no, their adultery was not innocent, but also her husband's cheating on her. So like do two wrongs make a right? No, but (laughs) it's under, you know, like you can understand, you almost sympathize with them in a lot of what's going on. Well, I mean, I'm glad you bring that up because, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, he cheated on her with Myrtle, who in turn was cheating on her own husband. And the effect that had on him, Myrtle didn't care about. Because, it, you know, the book made a point of saying at certain times he looked physically ill. That, you know, he was gray, that he... He looked terrible. He was in terrible condition, obviously very depressed and maybe not eating. Like, we don't know for sure. But from the description, everything she was doing with Tom really hurt him, even when he didn't know who or exactly what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So kind of continuing on our first question, like, how far should one go when pursuing their goals? See, when I think of this question, you know, because I'm absolutely notorious for taking a question in the craziest wrong direction, this can really be applied to not just, you know, personal development of, you know, pursuing, you know, your, your own personal goals, but also certain professional goals. You know, there's always going to be a a debate on where the line is. You know, we've talked in the past about genetics and how, you know, they're doing, you know, different procedures that will essentially allow parents to choose which genes they pass on to their children, which has sparked a huge ethical debate on why would we even do that? Mm-hmm. And I mean, when talking, I mean, that's a goal for somebody is I want to do this. Um, and no matter how small the choice is or where, you know, what your goal might be there, someone is debating on the line of your actions. Uh, what was it? Niccolo Machiavelli, the ends justify the means. That definitely doesn't pass for most people. Yeah. I mean, I think goals are really important. I mean, if you don't have a goal, then what are you working towards as far as 
personal goals or professional goals or relationship goals. And you should always have something you're shooting for. You should always be reaching for more, but not to the extent Gatsby was. I mean, he had this picture of his life. Like you said, the white picket fence. It was the beautiful house with lots of money with Daisy. And so when things with Daisy didn't work out exactly how he wanted, when he pursued her and she, when she didn't fit in his box, when she didn't, when she couldn't meet his expectations and she couldn't tell Tom she didn't love him, that just, it, it didn't fit in Gatsby's plan. And so he just, he couldn't handle it. He didn't know what to do with that. It didn't meet his expectations. So not only did he put expectations on himself and his own goals, but he put them on other people and didn't know how, I mean, people are human, obviously, like they've got their own goals, their own intentions, their own wills and you you can't tell people how to live their lives basically and that's essentially what Gatsby was trying to do with Daisy in a loving manner he had good intentions but he just went about them the wrong way well on that note just kind of to expand on that idea he had this idea of how everyone was going to act in his perfect world Mm -hmm. like he was just going to take Daisy. Daisy was just going to be like, oh, yep, I'm going to be married to you now. And Tom was just going to disappear. He was going to become a recluse. He was going to leave New York. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, and that's, how one, I think, one of his biggest flaws is that he has these expectations of people that are unrealistic. Yeah. More than just Daisy, but of... Tom, of Nick, of, of everybody. What do you think of the lavish parties at the Gatsby Mansion were meant to represent? What is the author trying to say about American culture? I think the lavish parties were just really representative of this period of time. Like the 1920s, that was, you know, the Roaring Twenties. It's known for the end of the Prohibition. So there's lots of alcohol and everyone's celebrating. There's a big economic boom and it's just a whole decade of let's push the limit to that point in time. Women especially, they were very modest and they were the homemakers and they didn't smoke or drink or cuss or do anything promiscuous. During the 20s, they just kind of did the opposite. They stepped away from their traditional roles and they were openly drinking and smoking and wearing you know flapper dresses and things like that. And so uh, these lavish parties just really showed what the culture was like at the time. I think that was kind of what they were supposed to represent. I mean, I think I can sum it, what you said and kind of what I think as reckless innovation, Mm -hmm. you know, doing things for the sake of doing them. Because with the economic boom, there was a huge, you know, change in industry. There was a huge change in how people spent their money. Um, at least for the people who were wealthy enough to be able to spend their money like that. Um, But, I mean, that also kind of says a lot about our culture today, particularly here, um, where is spending culture? Yeah. I mean, nothing is made to last long. Everything is disposable. Well, and it's like you said, it was reckless and irresponsible. And what happened immediately after this... 10 years or whatever of celebrating 
the Great Depression, like the you know, biggest economic downfall that we've seen. So all this needless spending and just throwing away money essentially is obviously <laughs> didn't go so well for anybody. Well, obviously <laughs> one potential factor in the whole grand scheme of things. I'm sure there was a lot of other nonsense that went down that brought the depression. Oh yeah. Yeah. But that's part of it. I mean, not just lavish parties, but just the people's, the mindset around money. It was, you know, it's expendable. Wouldn't it be great if we could just blame it on a party. <laughs> that one party just, you know, gave us however many years of the great depression. That, that one party in New York and, and then everything just went downhill from there. <laughs> But the interesting thing was, um, I don't know if you know much about Fitzgerald, but I watched this show on Amazon Prime back a couple years ago. It was um, uh, something, I mean, his wife's name was Zelda. It was more about her than it was about him, but it was like about their life together and them when they first met and got married and kind of what that looked like. And they got married right after his first novel became like a big success, This Side of Paradise. And so they were living this life. They were living the lavish parties and the spending all their money. And he was so busy drinking and partying that he couldn't write another book. I mean, his publishers had given him an advance for his next book and they spent all of that advance and then some and still had no book to show for it. So then they ended up having to sell everything and essentially went bankrupt because they just didn't prioritize the right thing so when they hit rock bottom you know financially and emotionally and you know he just he understood firsthand what the highs and lows of this type of lifestyle were how fun the parties were and how great it was but then what can come from it if you're not responsible with your money and just your life and on that note i'm going to segue into what you're going to accept an acceptable segue okay into the movie the Great Gatsby, the film adaptation that most recently came out. So, I absolutely love that they addressed something in the book that kind of is just pushed off to the side. Alcoholism. Nick starts off the movie, played by Tobey Maguire, who did an amazing job. Um, <laughs> he starts off in a scene they made up in a rehab facility. And that's definitely not in the book. I mean, in the book, he's just kind of talking to himself. But to frame it as a story he's talking to, or he's telling a therapist, like, hey, here's how it kind of went down. This is why I'm, I'm where I am today. I, I really did like that framework. What's interesting about that is that, I don't know if you knew this, but this is a Baz Luhrmann movie. He's the director. He also directed my all-time favorite movie, Moulin Rouge. Our all-time favorite. Yes, our favorite. Um, and Moulin Rouge, spoiler alert, starts off very similar. I mean, it starts off with Christian after the fact, just as, you know, like the end of the story, essentially. And he's, I won't say what happens, but he's talking about how he ended up where he is. And he he was doing something very similar to Nick. He was in his recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously in the first scenes, he, you know, he's drunk, he's on the floor, gets up to the typewriter. 
but as he's writing, it's it's like he's curing himself of his alcoholism, which, yeah, that's not how it works, but it, him writing released all that emo- emotional baggage. It was therapeutic, even if it's not rehab necessarily. I mean, was rehab even a thing back in that day? I don't know. But um, I just, I thought that was interesting that they're both Basler movies and ended like that. And something else I thought about is the other big Baz Luhrmann movie that I know of is Romeo plus Juliet. And so <laughs> all three of the big Baz Luhrmann movies I've seen are all tragedies. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> Romeo and Juliet both die in the end. And this one, Gatsby dies and doesn't get the girl. And I won't, for those who haven't seen Wanderers, I won't explain what happens. But it's also a tragedy. And I mean, they tell you in literally the first 30 seconds what happens, but... I'll just let you watch it, it. That it doesn't matter because you are still devastated at yeah. the end. Well, and that's kind of the funny thing about how they do it. They, you know, they tell you in the first 30 seconds exactly how the movie's going to end, but it's so brief. And then you get into the actual story and you forget. By the time you get to the end and what you know is going to happen happens, you're like, wait a minute. It, I, I forgot about that or I wasn't expecting that. So I just thought that was funny. I guess Baz Luhrmann has a, a thing for tragedies <laughs> so what do you think about daisy's assessment that women must be pretty but unintelligent if they want to be happy and then what in her life kind of led to that conclusion i remember reading the ebook because you put notes <laughs> and you highlighted this <laughs> section uh and i sat here and i'm like i'm i'm glad you did because i would have mm-hmm. Because I just loved it. I loved how honest she was. She says that you have to live a life of denial to be happy. You have to truly reject that there's pain in the world and be oblivious to it. You know, you have to, I mean, she says it's easier to be unintelligent and oblivious to it because if you know about it, you can't really be happy. Yeah. And you have to pretend it doesn't exist, which is even worse. You have to be ignorant of the social issues and other things going on in the world to, you know, blissful oblivion. Is that what they call it? <laughs> um, yeah. And even kind of going a step beyond that is just being a woman in that day and age. Like it was a very empowering time compared to what had been. You know, they were able to get away with a lot more and but basically it's like all these things were happening but it's still a patriarchy we still live in a patriarchy today you know but then especially women were property of their husbands they couldn't do much without a husband and so yes they're participating more in society with men and they have more freedom than ever but it's a man's world so I mean Daisy knew Tom is cheating on her but she didn't feel like she could leave because she has no livelihood but she was also in that class yeah you know that status where she didn't want need to work she was supposed to marry a rich husband and do and take care of the home yeah and when you know take care in air quotes you know like watching Downton Abbey oh I have to you know stay home at the estate well I can do that on the weekend or like Emily Gilmore (laughs) what's a weekend (laughs) yeah But yeah, I agree. Like she knew that in order to be happy, you just, you had to be 
oblivious to what was really going on and able to overlook the injustices in the world. So what does the green light represent? Oh, yes, the green light. Um, For those who may not know what it physically represented, it was this light at the end of Daisy and Tom's dock that was directly across from Gatsby's house. So he could see the light from his dock. And so to Gatsby, this green light represented potential. You know, he'd spent his entire adult life pining after Daisy, loving her from far away. And when she finally stopped waiting on him and married someone else, he, you know, he bought this house so that he could be close to her. So he could work towards that goal we talked about earlier of his life with her that he had imagined. You know, he never saw anything less than him as essentially a millionaire and Daisy. That's his perfect world. And so this house across the bay was that potential. He, he was so close to her, both physically and metaphorically. And he, he knew he could close that gap and be with her one day. So that light was his hope of a future with her. To the reader, the, the green light is a mixture of obsession and hope. And of a dream. I don't know why, but this, um, and I had to Google it to make sure I do it right. But it immediately reminded me of Star Trek. You'd always hear this little blurb. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. That last little part, to boldly go where no man has gone before, kind of explains the entire culture of the society. You know, hey, they're all about, you know, I'm buying a car this week. I'll sell it to you. Buy another one the next week. It is, I need the newest thing. I need to be the biggest craze. I need to be on top. And so to go where no man has gone before, you know, making yourself, you know, having that constant adventure. Um, And that's what the green light, it was his adventure with Daisy. You know, Nick, he saw that perfect world that Jay wanted. And for a while, wanted for him. Yeah. And something else I thought was interesting was when Daisy and Jay finally reconnect and they're at the end of his dock and he mentions like, well, here, I'll just read the passage real quick. Um, so if it wasn't for the mist, we could see your home across the bay, said Gatsby. You always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. She didn't even know she had a green light. You know, something that was so important to him she didn't even know existed and then Daisy put her arm through his abruptly but he seemed absorbed in what he had just said possibly it had occurred to him that the colossal significance of that light had now vanished forever compared to the great distance that had separated him from Daisy it had seemed very near to her almost touching her it had seemed as close as a star to the moon now it was again a green light on a dock his count of enchanted objects had diminished by one yep (laughs) I just love that like, for real, that was heart-wrenching. Yeah. This book is just poetry. <laughs> like, not 
but you know, like so many of the lines in it, like I just kept highlighting things and being like, oh, this is just beautiful. So beautifully written. See, like I, I'm reading this book and whenever there's like a really great line, especially if it's one that is put into the film adaptations, all I hear is my old roommate, Little Mike, quoting it. Because <laughs> he absolutely loves Leo DiCaprio. So, like, Great Gatsby is his, one of his favorite movies. So, like, if you watch it with him, he will quote the movie. And so, like, I just kept reading it and then hearing his voice. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is a great, <laughs> this is amazing. I love this book. I did appreciate how um, close they kept the, or how many lines directly from the book they used in the movie. Because I, I wouldn't have noticed it before because I've never, like, read it and then watched it immediately after but you know, I like read it a couple weeks ago and then within a day or two of finishing the book, I went ahead and watched the movie and a lot of it is direct lines, which when oh, a yeah. book is written that wonderfully, like why would you mess it up? Like why even bother changing it? But um, I, just, I really appreciated that they did that. I mean, they really did keep very close to the vision of the book. We could have it all wrong. <laughs> could have it all analyzing it so deeply and then he's like nah i just i just wanted to write a book (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe you know for all we know this could be like a great big joke and there could be like underlying themes that no one has ever thought of before because they were like so simple like i'm a big taylor swift fan and i'm in this group on facebook where it's literally insane how deep people go in trying to like unveil clues in her music videos or in her Instagram posts. She's known for kind of hiding things for her fans, like clues for a new new music coming out or a new tour or new albums or just, you know, she's like, that's kind of, she always hides little Easter eggs and everything. And so people take it to the extreme. Like she at one point posted like a series of pictures, like maybe there was like one picture a day for like three or four days in a row. And people went and they were counting objects in each picture and they had convinced themselves it was a countdown like one they were like this picture had five palm trees in it and the next one had there were four holes in the fence and then the next one there she's on the third step of the stairs and it mean it was literally ridiculous so I always just laugh and think like I wonder if authors could come back today like these famous authors of stories that we all study and analyze and they'd be like I no, it's seventy eight cents. <laughs> no, I bought it for seventy eight cents. No significance of the number. Yeah, <laughs> that's just how much it costs. Yeah. So it's just funny that you know we all spend we spend hours and hours analyzing this stuff, and then it's like, no, just just liked the color or just liked the number or whatever. People spend hours and hours because it's good writing. Yeah. Because they create fandoms. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we can say you, the amount of time you and I have spent talking about Harry Potter. Yep. Yep. I mean, a lot of people do. It inspired so much passion in people and it kept them talking about it, which is a goal of writing, is to connect to an audience where everyone can have different interpretations or different experiences from reading what you have. But the fact that you're touching so many people with your words that's the goal so thank you for joining us and we're gonna go ahead and do a little 
preview of our next book. We're actually doing two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're reading The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Because it is Valentine's Day, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, kind of have to. <laughs> uh, so I will actually be reading The Five Love Languages, the original. Uh, Lindsay, which one are you reading? Um, I found The Five language- Love Languages, the singles edition. So, yes, single as a Pringle and... <laughs> okay, first off, a single Pringle is kind of depressing. Right, but I'm allergic right. to potatoes, so I like I can't so even like, eat a Pringle. Eat a Pringle? <laughs> 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 Which is even more depressing. <laughs> I know, I get all your potatoes now. It's true, but you love potatoes, so it works. Um, true. Um, yeah, but we both really, really loved reading the Enneagram book last year. Um, I think it was really insightful for both of us. It's helped a lot in our relationships with each other and with other people, and so... We thought this would be a cool segue into kind of a different type of personality type thing by learning about the love languages and how you both give and receive love and can, you know, kind of build your relationships with friends or family or your romantic relationships, kind of anything. Simple ideas, lasting love. Between busy schedules and long days, expressing love can fall by the wayside. We forget to compliment, to give gifts, just because, to linger in our embrace. The things that say, I love you, seem to either not get said or not get through. This book is about saying and hearing it clearly. No gimmicks, no psychoanalyzing, just learning to express love in your spouse's language. And then on the back, it also kind of goes over the five words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. Uh, This is just, well, for us, two books, but there's quite a number of love language books by Gary Chapman, and he does work with other writers for topics that he personally doesn't have a lot of exposure to. Uh, Lindsay was here in Jacksonville, and we actually saw that he had one specifically for military spouses. Uh, we saw like a good collection, I think maybe seven, eight different kind of versions, like chicken soup. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of cool that he's kind of branched out into these niche little areas, and I honestly can't wait to read it. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it'll be good. All right. So you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Join in our discussion questions that we'll be posting on Monday mornings. And we can't wait to talk more about this next month. Okay. We'll see y'all next time.